last day, packed up and airplane ready, or so we think. Will we or will we not be able to take alcohol on the airplane in our checked luggage? I say yes, she says no. Sunday, October 17th, 2021, I'm Stephen Sersky, and this here is my travel audio diary. <laughs> been uh, making these every day uh, for the last just over a week. We've been in Chongqing and Chengdu, and so this brings us up to our very last day. We took the train in, and we're taking the plane out. And uh, the plane isn't going to land until about midnight. And at that point, uh, if there's not a bus shuttle, then we will have to take a cab back, which is unfortunate because Daxing Airport is uh, very far from the city. And it'll be very expensive to take a cab from Daxing uh, home to my place. But uh, that being the case, we got everything packed up and uh, ready to go. And it's good because uh, we can spend the day doing some other stuff. Uh, mostly going to be a museum day. We're thinking of the Chengdu Museum, the Sichuan Museum, and uh, maybe the Dufu Park if we can. We ended up getting quite a bit of it done. Uh, the Chengdu Museum, uh, it was downtown, right uh, like right downtown by the, actually by the Starbucks we went to a couple of times. And, uh, but it was busy. It's right by, um, uh, since our hotel was so close to it, we just, we walked there basically. But I mean, all of Chengdu is so tightly compact. It's a, it's a very easy city to get around in, which is very nice. Uh, but the, the, is it the People's Park or like this, the central square, I guess you would call it, um, with the statue of Mao overlooking it. Um, that's, uh, the Chengdu Museum is on the west side of it, I believe. And uh, so that made it very convenient to get to. We got there not too early, but uh, not too late. And I can tell you, it was absolutely packed. And this was after, we, I mean, we had breakfast outside. Uh, but I mean, since we were packing and everything, uh, we figured we'd take our time. We don't don't really like to rush too much. Uh, one of the interesting things that we were able to pick up along the way for breakfast were, were these, um, I'd never seen them before, they're they're brown sugar mian bao. Uh, so if you've been to China at all, you know mian bao is typically it's made with white rice flour. And uh, they're white. And they're steamed. Uh, but these ones, they had a couple different flavors. You've probably seen the purple ones. And I think those are mixed with beets. Not sure. You may have seen some orange ones. And that might be with corn. Uh, but uh, the brown ones I'd never seen before, and they were a little bit sweeter. So these were brown sugar mian bao, or buns, uh, brown sugar buns. Which, they're good, so we bought a couple in, uh, in addition to our typical yotiao and then some jiaozi as well, and some dojang, or uh, what would you call it? Soybean milk, which is good to wash it all down. So that was sort of our breakfast, kind of cheap. I think it was like 30 kwai total. But yeah, getting into uh, Chengdu Museum. Chengdu Museum was actually uh, pretty neat. Um, it's huge, and it's one of these sort of like these provincial, well, it's a city, a municipal museum. Um, but it's just been redone, I guess, in the last couple of years. And it, oh, busy. <laughs> just overrun with people, uh, families all over the place, children screaming. I have, actually have a sound clip for you guys at the end of this episode. If you want to hear just how noisy it was uh, to, 
uh, in that museum, particularly in the lower floor with all the uh, I call can I say stuffed animals, <laughs> the the you know what do you call them taxidermied animals. Uh, where they preserve all the animals and things like that. So they had specimens and replicas of a lot of the uh, different creatures uh, that are found in Chengdu and around uh, like China, but then also around the world. So they have uh, uh, little geographical exhibits throughout the place, which was neat to see. It was kind of cool sort of seeing what they had on offer. Uh, and some interactive exhibits as well, which the kids had fun. There's one wall where you can go slap it. You'd slap the animal, and then the lights would uh, it would turn on, and then it would make a sound, I think it was. It would replicate the sound of that animal. It was kind of neat, so the kids you know, could reach up to about, what, three feet, two feet? <laughs> and then you'd have to get their parents to, to uh, slap the higher animals, which was uh, kind of neat uh, to see, a neat idea anyway. Um, I mean, things like elephants, lions, um, giraffes, and uh, things like that. So, uh, pretty neat exhibit overall. Nice museum. Uh, had lots of stuff, lots of old artifacts. Uh, I'm not sure if they were real or if they were replicas. Went through the history of Chengdu. Um, had some uh, some scripture, not scriptures, what do you call them? Like stone tablets, writings. Uh, there was a whole floor... Was it a whole floor? Yeah, it was TCM. So they had a whole floor uh, dedicated to traditional Chinese medicine, and they had uh, like flavor samples. Like you can you can taste them, but you could open them up and you could smell them. So and they had these things, and I'm not sure how they preserved these things or if they had to at all. Uh, but it was pretty neat to uh, be able to have this, this wall of boxes filled. I'm assuming they weren't all filled, but that uh, they were sort of like the middle row was filled, and then that was it, sort of thing. Uh, but it was kind of neat to have that sort of uh, that that firsthand experience, being able to s- sniff these uh, um, products, these TCM products, as it was. And it's like you know tea leaves and herbs and uh, spices and things like that. That I'm not sure if they use spices, but I, I mean I wouldn't be able to identify most of them. All I know is that they had boxes full of samples. Uh, they also had a history of the city uh, from ancient times uh, to modern times. Uh, they had a whole city street, like a replica city street, uh, which was pretty neat. Although, I mean, it was like very much a tribute to how the city looked a long time ago, and it doesn't look like that anymore. <laughs> which kind of made me think. What would a museum in a hundred years depict of our cities today? And especially of China, because China has got, undergone such rapid modernization. How how would those museums present them? And how would they present the ancient times as well? Uh, assuming, of course, that the museums build upon each other and that they add to what they have and not just rip it out and reshape it sort of thing. Or is that what they're going to do? Again, <laughs> who knows? Uh, so with the replica city street, they had different people doing their their, their different types of jobs and uh, and their stances and everything. So it was kind of neat to see that as well. Uh, and they had uh, lots of bam- figurines and bamboo writings. There we go. So bamboo writings, uh, not not scriptures, not writings, but they had uh, um, not oracle bones either, but uh, like wooden. Uh, not just clay pots, because that was ancient, 
but also like on wood and on paper. They had, you know, your traditional Chinese characters that had been uh, drawn by somebody who uh, was sort of very good at handwriting. It was kind of neat uh, to see how the, uh, it was very extensive, the collections that they had, especially the ancient Chengdu and uh, display, more famous, they had this one mask. And I'm sure if you ever go to uh, Chengdu, how does it say, it's Shang Dynasty, I think it is, or Zhang Dynasty, uh, a bronze human head. And this is very emblematic of uh, Chengdu, of Sichuan, because it sort of, this links the the province to its past so much so and this one uh do you call it a civilization or one people that one tribe that used to inherit that place that land uh they've left behind all of these uh, very ornate uh pottery and pots and pans and faces and bronze uh, sculptures uh, bronze uh, materials of all sorts, so it was kind of neat. And as far as I know, like so, Chengdu and the Chengdu Museum and Sichuan Museum shared this. So Chengdu Museum had one part of it, but then the Sichuan Museum, as we would later on see, had another part of it. Uh, so it was sort of a massive collection. I'm guessing uh, this is something that they uh, sort of spend a lot of time researching in their in their uh, in their museum efforts. Um, lots of, some marble works, uh, some jade works as well, uh, as far as I remember. Uh, but a lot of this, what would you call it, terracotta? Like figurine works that, um, but like uh, not not terracotta like the ones in Xi'an. These were figurines kind of like back in the old days of, uh, what would you call it? Uh, like the Minoans had sim similar sort of, or the Mycenaeans had these little figurines that you look at them that go, oh, that's kind of cute, right? So they had similar things uh, from Chengdu as well. Uh, lots of artifacts from the Song Dynasty, which is what I, I, the dates here I have are 960 to 1279. And so that's one of the dynasties that uh, ruled over parts of China for at least a little while uh, and uh, left behind quite a few artifacts as well. Uh, same with silver uh, what do you call it? Silver ingots and gold rods. The silver ingots got me because the jiaozi that China, like a lot of Chinese people make for the spring festival are are said to be, are said to imitate the uh, silver ingots that used to store silver. But these ones more look like a hammerhead uh, like a, or an axe head rather than a silver ingot, even though they were pure silver. So I'm not sure exactly why, you know, are, are the Jiaozi different in Sichuan? I don't think so. <laughs> uh, but overall, the, one of the really neat things that they had in the uh, museum was that they had uh, these, you'd almost call them like dwarves, uh, like mystical dwarves, but a whole city full of these uh, figurines that had been hand sculpted and they're all sort of unique. They all, they look similar, but they're all very unique in their own sort of way. Uh, and they're all, some of them are on display or a lot of them on display. So they're color glazed pottery figurines. 
uh, like of generals and things like that. And this is from the Ming Dynasty, which, is, uh, if I can read these numbers right, was like the thir 13th, 14th century to the 17th century, so around there, 1368 to 1644 are the dates I, I see in my pictures. Um, and so they had this sort of little replica city as well, replica like palace structure, and all these little uh, figurines that you could uh, uh, walk walk beside, but you couldn't walk through. They were all behind glass. And then, of course, the massive dedication to uh, the, the Chengdu city uh, during, not so massive, I mean, there was an homage, I guess, a couple of guns and things like that, soldiers, replicas of uh, Chengdu city, uh, after, did this place get bombed too? I know Chongqing got bombed. Uh, I'm not sure if Chengdu got bombed as much though. I don't think so. Uh, but they did sort of mark the war effort that Chengdu had as well. A massive amount, uh, I think it was the whole fourth or whole fifth floor, was dedicated to the Sichuan Opera and Chinese paper cutting. So if, you ever, if you're interested in those things... Uh, the Chengdu Museum is where you're at, and you, you could there were some interactive uh, exhibits that you could do there as well. You can sort of uh, take a look at how to uh, make these figurines, these paper cuttings, um, and then also a lot of the uh, textiles that go into Sichuan Opera and the puppetry behind them. Uh, so like even how they you'd make the paper mache and the structures, the actual uh, what do you call them, the rigs of the puppets themselves. So it's kind of neat to see. Not, I mean, I can't say that I'm very attracted to this form of musical display, mostly because it's uh, not only is it in a language I have trouble understanding, the pitch and the the, the notes that they can hit with it are a little chiguai, uh, strange, odd to me. I guess you could call it. Uh, and this is more, I don't know anyone who doesn't watch these operas with some sort of, um, you know, subtitles. Now, Sichuan opera is different from Peking opera. Peking opera is that very screechy type of opera. Sichuan opera more deals with, like, the puppetry uh, and uh, sort of, and I'm not sure if there's as much dialogue, actually, in Sichuan opera. I don't know, to tell you the truth. We never did get around to... Uh, uh, seeing any, so uh, it was kind of disappointing uh, in that regard. But I mean, probably we could catch something in Beijing if we wanted, if we looked hard enough. Uh, but yeah, lots of uh, figurines, and then the uh, museum itself. I mean, we spent some time. Uh, there wasn't very much in the restaurant or the the snack, whatever you call it. The uh, yeah, the cafe that they had up on the fifth or sixth floor. I can't remember. Uh, along with, I think there was a tea uh, presentation as well, where you could uh, look into. Or see some things about traditional Chinese tea. After that, it was uh, pretty. Uh, it was about noon, just afternoon or so, and so we uh, had headed headed on out and started to make our way uh, towards uh, the Sichuan Museum. And again, we just used the uh, Hello bikes, which were nice and convenient to get, and is probably one of the best things about modern China is that they have these bikes that you can rent through an app and uh, ride them in just about, well, in a lot of cities. Not every city, but a, a lot of them anyway. Uh, Sichuan Museum is a little bit smaller, but it was wider and had uh, larger, I want to say wider exhibit halls, but I'm starting, I'm thinking, I don't think they were actually wider. I just think that they had more, they had less stuff inside of them and wider spaces. 
Uh, so that's kind of how I'm thinking of it anyway. But the main floor had uh, a lot of the watercolors. And it was uh, th this guy, I can't, oh, I can't remember his name. He was also famous in Taiwan. And I guess when we were in Taiwan, uh, he uh, painted a bunch of... Um, he made a, there was a long, oh, I can't, who was it? We visited his artwork in Taiwan as well. I think, I can't remember what city it was either. Uh, but uh, he's very well known, and I guess Chengdu is where, is where he hails from. Uh, but in this exhibit at the Sichuan Museum, they had uh, all of his copies, the painted copies he made of the Dunhuang Grottoes. And so the Dunhuang Grottoes are like this series of, uh, murals, basically, uh, that uh, sort of deal with, what would you call it, um, different aspects of Chinese folk tradition. Sorry, not Chinese tradition, of a lot of the, uh, I guess you call them, I want to say they're, they're Buddhas. Is that what they are? Yeah, they're, it's a Buddhist mon monument. Uh, a lot of Buddhist, um, oh, what do you call them? I'm blanking again. You know, they have like variations of Buddha, like, and they have like a thousand of them. Well, the Dunghuang Grottoes have something similar, but uh, this guy painted, he copied the, the the grotto work on paint on this papyrus or uh, these uh, these sheets of paper, and that's what is hanging up in this uh, Sichuan Museum. Very ornate. Took him a long time. Uh, and uh, so he's, he's sort of famous for this. Uh, what was his name? Zhang Da Qian. That's his name. Zhang Da Qian. So this is the famous guy who painted all of these uh, the copies of the Dunhuang Grottoes, uh, and is also famous in uh, in Taiwan as well. Uh, so lots of it wasn't just his work. There was some other work uh, like. A lot of art and calligraphy, uh, watercolor, uh, things like that. A uh, whole, whole wing dedicated to these things. So if you like that sort of stuff, uh, certainly uh, take a look <laughs> in Sichuan. That's where you want to go. I thought it was kind of neat um, moving over to the other side and seeing all the uh, prehistoric pottery and fragments. And it, it couldn't. I couldn't help but think, you know... As an archaeologist, I'm sure they're trained for this, and I'm not. So this is my wonderment of the profession. How do you tell the difference between a brick, an axe, a cutting tool, or just some narrow-shaped rock? Same with like finding like teeth or bone fragments, like of little animals. In could I tell the difference? I, well, I mean, I guess if I was trained to do it, but. And the reason I, I mention this is because one of the opening displays of this prehistoric um, pottery and fragments section is just like it's just shards of rock, shards of something of you know rock. That's it. It looks like pieces of rock have been assembled in random orders um, and labeled as such. But they're saying that these things are you know such and such tools or implements and. What have you? I mean, who am I to disagree? The pottery, okay, I get that. And I guess, let's be fair, if you found a bunch of pottery and then you know at least something about the area uh, that, I don't know, people used to live here, other people used to live here, and you find what looks like a bone, 
then you could assume that maybe this is either, was it a catastrophe or a cemetery? And if it's a cemetery, then what would you be looking for in a cemetery? Likewise, if it was a city, what would you find in cities uh, from that time? Uh, so it was kind of neat. I, I, I still kind of lo like looking at these things because they're kind of fun to sort of uh, see how the artists made stuff way back when, their interpretation of the human figure, uh, the utility of some of their artwork as well, like pots and pans, and um, not pans, but pots and uh, urns and things like that, and then figurines and other sorts of uh, implements that they used. Like, can you imagine like saving up your cash for a better axe? You know, <laughs> is that what people thought about? I mean, I, that's a modern way of thinking of it, you know, saving it up. How did they come around to making these? Did you have to make your own? I don't know. This is one of my big questions about, you know, how life was back then. Wouldn't it be kind of cool to go back in time and see how they modified rocks into weapons and utensils that they could use? Anyway, moving on uh, from the, uh, the fragments, the teeth and the rocks <laughs> uh they had some buddhist figurines uh, and some paintings and some textiles from the late qing dynasty and this uh, occupied another wing of the um, the museum uh and again these were all again it was like variations of the buddha basically uh, i'm not sure of all their names like lots <laughs> lots of different names uh all made of copper or at least most of them were made of copper uh, and the textiles were sort of hanging on display in one room as well. Uh, so it was kind of neat. They did have placards, like cards for each and every uh, little Buddha variation. But, uh, I mean, are you going to remember them? I don't, uh, unless you are a specialist in this. And even then, I, I wonder how you can know these things. But I guess there are people who are out there like that, right, who uh, study these things. So... Again, this collection was, uh, I would say, rather thorough in that uh, in that regard, uh, and of course some vases or vases as well, um, and other copper works that they had available to them. And then the other thing that they had was uh, they had some writings as well, and was it written in Tibetan? I guess it must have been. Uh, not sure. Yeah, or I, I'm not sure of the script writing, uh, but I have here the biography of. Padmasambhava, time unknown, paper. <laughs> so uh, there's some scripts like this uh, that they had along uh, written. Not, it wasn't in Chinese. It was written, I, I, I want to say it was written in uh, Tibetan script, but I'm not entirely sure to tell you the truth. So it was kind of neat to take a, a walk through it as they did have it organized very nicely. Uh, and it was very easy to, to go through, but... You know, a lot of it, you start kind of, your eyes start glazing over after a while. They also had some, uh, what do you call it, jade and other sort of precious rocks, some paper cuttings as well. Uh, so it was kind of neat. They had some paintings that had two sides to it, not paintings, what do you call them, textiles. So imagine like looking at a carpet from one side and then flipping it over and seeing another animal on the other side, right? So it was like two-faced carpet or two-faced textile. So they had that uh, displayed in a, uh, in a in a glass enclosure. That was kind of neat. Uh, some of the textile work, I guess uh, they are very proud of their multi-ethnicity. So their multi, not yeah, multiculturalism within the province itself. 
as they did have quite a few uh, textiles from different, I guess, tribes, you'd call them, that once populated the area. And like, these are all from, what do you call them, Qing Dynasty. So this is all from 1644 to 1911. 1911 was a big shift in Chinese hit history. Uh, but I guess these these clothings, what they had, uh, and these face masks, a lot of those belong to some of the performances that they put on. But uh, the the clothes that they have, like they had jackets and uh, just sort of normal wear as well that they, they were had on display. All kind of neat. Some of it was ornate, some of it was rather plain and bland. Uh, and uh, other than that, it was clothes. Clothes are clothes. So decently well preserved, but I mean only 100 years old. So if those are original, pretty neat to, uh, to see. Uh, one thing I thought was really uh, kind of neat was the basement floor was full of Han Dynasty steelies and some other artifacts that they had. And then also, the very last portion that we got to was the Ba Shu history. Uh, they were taken over by the Qin, uh, but they left a whole bunch of uh, artifacts behind. These steelies, like imagine uh, huge slabs of rock uh, engraved with whatever. Uh, like commemorations, usually it's like a, for, like a commemoration for someone who passed away. I'm not sure if they were put in cemeteries, or uh, I'm guessing they would be. Uh, or maybe if they're put at the door of somewhere. But uh, it was sort of neat to be able to... I guess one of the, the notable things of these steelies was that uh, they had ornate images on the boxes. Like looking at one of the pictures I took of a, of a coffin uh, that was made. And let's see, the placard says, uh, oh, so the Wenjong stone figurines, well, that was beside the coffins. Uh, so they had different figurines as well on display uh, there. Let's see, what was this uh, this card? Uh, stone coffin engraved with acrobatics on banquet. And so this was from 25 to 220 AD. So it's quite a, quite a while ago. I guess the Han Dynasty, that's when they uh, were sort of uh, very, they were number one <laughs> uh, back a couple, couple thousand years ago already. That's at least this is when they're they're taking this sort of uh, this stonework from, and uh, uh, so these the artworks that they have left or the the steelies that they have left are remarkably preserved. If these are real, uh, now I kind of wonder if maybe a lot of the real ones are in Beijing and the National Museum rather than uh, down here in uh, in in uh, where do you call it Chengdu. But some of the neat ones they had uh, was a stone base of a tortoise. So it was kind of neat to, to see this Eastern Han Dynasty, 25 to 230 AD or 220 AD. Um, and it was under, unearthed at Dianjiang Tai. So I guess that's one of the places where they are able to find a lot of this stuff. And uh, they had a, quite a few of these things. Let's see, what does it say? Yeah, Dianjiang Tai. Tortoise socket. Eastern Han Dynasty, 25 to 225. Yeah, so, and this one's one of these ones where you could get an audio explanation if you have the audio device. We didn't, because uh, how, how much are you going to remember of this stuff? Kind of neat, though, that these things were all in the open air, uh, and you could just walk around looking at them. They're all much taller than me, so they're all, I guess, I mean, just over, I mean, there are quite a few things that are taller than me, but uh, these steelies, 
uh, were about six feet or a bit taller as well. Uh, so it was kind of neat to uh, uh, be able to walk amongst these these tablets, these stone tablets, see what they had to uh, the, the pictures that they had on on display. Uh, steel is in stone tomb door, so that's what uh, uh, the the major part of this um, this exhibit was. Some phoenixes and phoenixes are usually associated with uh, you know death, and then you you rise from the dead, basically rise from the ashes. Uh, that's the idea, anyway. Remarkably good um, preserver, preserved. If they're replicas, then they've done a good job of replicating them, I guess. One of the neat things was moving over to another collection they had of very similar, you know, the Elgin marbles from Athens that are controversially still in England or at the British Museum. But they had a bunch of things like that, uh, like brickwork from the same time. And these also, they had either characters or they had uh, like little action sequences. I don't want to call action sequences, but pictures. You know, it was the Instagram of the ancient world, I guess. Uh, and they have show different parts of daily life, like cooking, sewing, trading, fishing, um, war. <laughs> Typical. Uh, but uh, so it all made out of stonework from the same uh, around the same time. Then after all that stonework, I mean, if your eyes weren't glazed over by then, uh, you got the Bashu uh, collection. And this was kind of neat because this was sort of the larger stuff that the Chengdu Museum didn't have. And uh, I guess they're notable for leaving behind this very ornate face. This very ornate, is it iron or bronze face? Uh, very pointed nose, uh, uh slinted eyes, slanted eyes, pointy ears with a, a grin on his face. And it's very like a square face sort of thing. So it, it doesn't look necessarily human. But again, it, I mean, it looks as if it's it would belong to the uh, other replications or other depictions of the people back then. Um, now, I, I don't know the entire history of the Bashu people uh they were they sort of came together over time before the chin took them over uh back in what was it oh goodness no goodness me well at least one of these uh cards that i have here is from 1600 to 1000 bc i guess that's when these these two uh were in the area <clears throat> they left a bunch of ornate pottery as well uh very similar to the stuff that you'd find in not similar but of the same type of uh, Minoan or Mycenaean from ancient Greece at that time. Uh, like in the Mediterranean Sea, they had a bunch of pots similar with, you know, the figurines that are um, imprinted on the, the lips or the, uh, the face of the pots. And then, I mean, I guess these were a bit more special. Some of them were bronze, so they were engraved. Others were of, uh, I guess they were like what you'd call them actual, like... Uh, actual pot, like clay pots of some sort. Uh, but uh, the bronze work is the stuff that sort of stands out the most uh, and is what these uh, these two civilizations are sort of known for the most. Um, they have a lot of bells as well, a lot of figurines, uh, which was kind of neat to see how they, uh, like, I mean, for, uh, we can call them primitive, but that's some pretty cool shit back then, I'm not going to lie. Uh, this, I'm looking at this elephant uh, figurine that uh, they made 
I'm not entirely sure what it does, some sort of ceremony or whatever it is, and uh, very popular because everyone was taking pictures of it, uh, but uh, very ornate uh, elephant with, um, I guess it's like some sort of pouring, so you, know, you put water in it, and you pour it, or oil, and you put, you know, uh, pour it out, so that was kind of neat, and they had a whole bunch of other things like, um, I, I want to say it's a, uh, I don't know what animal that is, like a carnivore of some sort, like a wolf, but not a wolf, <laughs> hyena, but it's not a hyena, I know that, <laughs> uh, and then of other pots that kind of look like rice cookers, but probably weren't rice cookers, and <laughs> things along like uh, that, uh, and they all very nicely displayed extensive collection of these things, uh, and it was uh, all all over the place. Oh, here's a, a picture I finally took of the placard. In 316 BCE, the Qin state annexed the Ba and Shu, and the state of bronze culture, uh, which was the dominant Chu culture in the Yangtze River Basin at that time. So, uh, Qin and Chu were powerful countries, uh, and I guess they basically took over, they, they, they suppressed the Ba and the Shu, and the Qin grew from there. So these are actually very changing times in, uh, like important times in Chinese history, as they it did sort of mark um, changes in the, uh, the trajectory of the area, and, I mean, would... You can read about the warring states and the different areas of China. Like today, we think of China as one country, but I mean, it's it's the the history that they boast of is you could kind of say very fractured in some ways, very uh, multicultural in many ways. Uh, not just one type of one language speaking people. It was quite a few. Their languages shared similarities. But uh, looking at how one uh, people took over another people, you kind of start seeing that there's there was some friction back then and that they did, you know, like a lot of places around the world, had tribes that didn't like each other and uh, would take them over if they could, you know, as you did back in the old days. The one place, uh, after the Sichuan Museum, after we got through the uh, Bashu exhibit, which was kind of neat, I think that was probably the neatest exhibit that... Uh, uh, was there, I guess. It was the biggest, the big head kind of made the uh, the trip worth it, I tell you the truth. Uh, so it was kind of neat to, uh, to see, and I'm not sure if it's a permanent exhibit or if it's temporary, uh, what they do with the stuff after. I'm not sure if they'd move it to the Chengdu Museum or just keep it there. I'm not entirely sure. But after we left, to, uh, left the uh, uh, Sichuan Museum, there's another place not too far called the Bashu uh, sorry, called the Dufu Cottage. And I guess this guy was some sort of writer or something, but it was already after 5 o'clock. The museum was closing. We were kicked out, basically, along along with everybody else. They were playing the... Uh, they shut the lights off at least once to kind of give us a warning, like, get out of here already. And then they finally had, a, you know, the Bawan come through and start pushing people out the door. Not literally, but uh, strongly encouraging people to get out. <laughs> so we did. Uh, no time for Dufu's Cottage. We rode down there. Uh, it was raining a little bit, as it does in Chengdu, uh, but not too bad. And we didn't want to risk losing our bikes because we were on these Hello Bikes again. And we, as we're riding by, we see no other bikes parked there. And we're going, well, we can't lock these up. We can't just put them down and then assume that we'll be able to find more because even riding there... It was probably a good two or three minutes from the main road, maybe a minute 
from the main road. Ah, two minutes. If we lock, if we got off the bikes and locked them up, chances are someone else would come in and take them. A lot of cars were moving around. Let's put it that way. So it was more like an accessible by car sort of place. Is it worth it? I try. I mean, I was looking at the uh, the board, uh, like the uh, the introductory board, and they said, yeah, the tickets are no longer available after four thirty or five. And yeah, after five, you're uh, no more tickets, and then the park closes at six. So it was too bad that it was like the one thing that we sort of missed on the uh, the docket, I guess you could say. Uh, too bad, but uh, you know how much more stuff can you see? We would have been able to quickly walk through it, and that's about it. After uh, all of that, since we didn't, we weren't in a rush to get our our luggage back from the hotel. We figured the last thing that we wanted to do was to go to this hot pot place just around from the hotel. Now, goodness me if I can remember the name of this place, but it was pretty famous. Had a lineup the, every night that we were there. And so we went. We, we wanted to get there early, though, early, so we wouldn't have to wait. And luckily, we got in. Can't remember how much it cost, but wow, was that spicy. Proper spicy. I mean, there's spice, and then there was what we had. And was, you're sitting there going... Okay, do we do I drink the beer or do I just ask for more hot water to rehydrate? I'm not sure which one is going to help me more at this point. Uh, good food, well worth it. Um, not going to like uh, very meat, vegetables, and some uh, some sort of dessert. What would you call it? I'm not even sure, like rice dessert of some sort. I can't remember, but it had chocolate on it, which was bizarre because so not chocolate on it. It had chocolate on the plate. I guess they sprinkled some on top, but it uh, it was like a rice dough. A rice. I want to say it's a dough uh, dessert, but it's not. It's like it, it's made out of rice, and you dip it in this chocolate sauce and had sugar on top, like brown sugar, that like the Sichuan uh, brown sugar. So that it was it was good. But they served it first before the meat. So, I mean, we ate that first. We had our dessert first, and then we started eating the meat, uh, waiting for the, uh, the uh, what would you call it, the, uh, the oil to start boiling. Uh, but whatever. I mean, so we ate most of the things anyway, and it was pretty good. Ate our fill. Um, the way that you're supposed to eat hot pot is actually you boil the meat first in the, in, the, in the oil, and then you move on to the vegetables. The idea being that the meat is heavier, so it sinks down, and then you put the vegetables on top in your stomach. I don't think the stomach qual- uh, classifies things much uh, in that way, but, uh, you know, it did. Uh, that, that's the process that I've been told, and that's the process that I follow when I'm here in China. After that, we got our luggage, and, of course, it was raining again, but we took uh, the cab, not a cab, the uh, subway uh, over to the airport, which um, about 45 minutes away from the downtown area, which is where we were staying. And uh, that was, uh, I mean, it was... <sighs> After a week on the road, living in the two hostels, or one hostel in the uh, hotel that we were in, it was kind of nice to actually uh, get back, because the hostel, although it was cheap, was kind of, it was too hot in the main room, (laughs) and then it was just kind of dead overall. I mean, being that it was after the National Day Festival, and National Day uh, Golden Week, um, most people were not traveling anymore, Uh, but just no life, not very much life, whereas the hotel, uh, again, didn't see anybody else, 
and the staff were very helpful. Uh, it was a bit cold and a bit noisy because there was construction going on outside and they'd start at 7, I think it was, typically. So that was a little bit bothersome, but, you know, sleep sleep off most of the times. Plus, when we went to Great Leap, I mean, slept pretty soundly that night. or I passed out, <laughs> right? Uh, maybe that wasn't the best sleep, but it did happen anyway. Anyway, off to the airport. Um, the one thing, if you do go to Chengdu, which I was warned about, uh, is that you do have to, and this is what we were wor- worried about for the, uh, um, what do you call it, the luggage with the alcohol. So when you check in your, when you check in and you drop off your luggage, there's actually, there's a sign off to the side that you need to be aware of that says, after three minutes, if you don't see your name appear here, you can leave. If you don't know that sign exists, and if that's the process you're following, what can happen is that you will go line up to go through uh, security. You may very well even see your name up there and go, hmm, why is my name up there? And if you don't know what's going on, which I kind of didn't, uh, good thing my girlfriend pointed this out. She's like, this is exactly what I was talking about. My, they had flagged my luggage. That's sort of okay. And so had we we've been staying there and we got to the security guy and he would have, he wouldn't have said anything. He doesn't know. So he would have let us go in. And once we pass that, I mean, it gets very difficult to come on out to get your luggage or more than likely you'd show up in Beijing and then wonder where your luggage is. So the idea is you see your name up there. You have to go back to the luggage uh, drop-off area, find the little room that they're uh, inspecting luggage, and inquire about your luggage. So what had happened, we thought it was going to be the alcohol. It wasn't. It was batteries, these AA batteries that I had that I was I didn't want in my carry-on. So they're like, well, you can, uh, like, I didn't want to carry them with me. And I actually had forgotten they were in there because I never did use them. So she's like, you can take them carry on, but you can't put them in the uh, the the checked in luggage. So that was good. I asked them about the alcohol. They're like, alcohol's fine. <laughs> okay, good. Let's just lock it all up again. And that was it. It was very nice, and they didn't really speak English, but they spoke enough that it uh, it was easy enough to sort of navigate the procedures that were necessary. Other than that, I mean, the busy the ho- not the hotel, the airport was kind of busy, so getting through security did take some time. Uh, but uh, we were there early enough that we had plenty of time to kill. Our plane wasn't until just after 10 or so. So that was uh, uh, probably the earliest I've ever been to an airport. (laughs) I don't get to airports very early, to tell you the truth. And then, yeah, once we uh, got back to uh, Beijing, it wasn't until midnight, at which point, very luckily... We had got the last bus. I'm not sure if they made the bus happen for us or what happened, but we were able to take the cheap bus. It was only like 25 kwai, 30 kwai each uh, to get dropped off near, uh, what would you call it? Oh, I can't remember. Somewhere just south of my apartment. So we had to walk a little bit in the cold. We ended up uh, taking a cab for a little bit just because it was, you know, kind of cold and we're like I don't want to walk let's just take a cab it's an extra 10 kwai or whatever and it was a bit smoggy too so you know let's be healthy (laughs) right and that would take us to the end of our Chongqing Chengdu Sichuan experience eight days nine days total took the long slow train in took the quick 
cheap plane out. Landed in Dashing, and that was, uh, well, it was kind of interesting all over to, you know, got to see the pandas, which is, you know, a big check mark after living in China for so long. Uh, tried the hot pot, another big check mark because everyone talks about it, especially if you ever come teach in China and you have any students that be like, have you tried hot pot? And you're like, of course I have. Uh, or But you haven't tried like the hot pot. So if you try Sichuanese hot pot, that is considered like, there you go, authentic Chinese style hot pot. And then of course, uh, you know, reading up and learning about the uh, the history, the the importance of Chongqing and Chengdu, but mostly like Chongqing in the uh, the war efforts in World War II and the development of the CP CPC, like the Communist Party of China, uh, and uh, how they all sort of the party was based there for a little while, and uh, they had meetings that led to the formulation of. Uh, uh, what we now know as uh, New China, so that was kind of neat as well. Chongqing is one of these massive cities. It's become a city. It broke away from Sichuan because it grew so much, grew so much over time. Uh, it used to be part of Sichuan, but now it governs itself. So it's um, it's kind of one of those anomalies where you kind of look. I'd like to go there, and you'd unless you had more time and a, probably a driver, I would say, you're going to spend the vast majority of your time in the downtown part of the city, which there's quite a bit to see there, uh, lots of hills, but you'd have to get a car or a transportation of some sort to uh, get out of the city and see some of the other things that the uh, the country, uh, the, the province has to offer, like the Gor Three Gorges Dam, uh, some of the uh, villages that offer some touristy uh, stuff and some of the other uh, um, sort of sites around Chongqing city itself. Chengdu is a little bit easier to navigate. There was one mountain that we didn't, Mount M.A., I can't remember what it was, uh, that the hotel would have uh, booked us for, like they would have uh, taken us through it. But with the time that we had, we figured it would be best to just uh, stick in the city. And you know what? Come back to Chengdu. It's not a problem. Probably fly. Probably would not take the slow, slow train again. <laughs> that experience has been done. And uh, not something I feel the need to really be repeating, at least uh, not anytime soon. And so with that, ends the vacation back to work and uh, back to life in Beijing as a working expat. All of this, the show notes and the tracks are available on my website, stephenserski.com. You can uh, download them there for free. Uh, you can get in touch uh, with me as well on the website if you have any questions about traveling through China or need some assistance. Be glad to help. Hope you guys enjoyed this little special presentation of the last week of my time in Chongqing and Chengdu. Hope you learned something, had a good laugh or two, and enjoyed it overall. Thanks, folks, thanks folks for listening. We'll talk again. Bye-bye. <laughs> Thank uh -huh.
生们，飞机即将起飞，请在座机人安全带已经系好，手机已切换至飞行模式。锂电池用电源禁止使用，谢谢。Ladies and gentlemen, we are ready for takeoff. Please make sure your seatbelt is fully fastened and your mobile phones have switched into flight mode. Thank you.